just in way of a very brief recap, uh, where we're at presently in our travels through the Gospel of Matthew is that following the Sermon on the Mount, which is recorded in chapters 5, 6, and 7, Matthew presents for us uh, two chapters of of many miracles. He's already kind of summarized that through uh, Jesus' ministry there in the Galilee, uh, that he was traveling, he had a circuit, he would go from synagogue to synagogue, uh, from town to town, teaching, preaching, the people will find a repeating of that summary here at the end of this chapter. Uh, but Jesus was more than just a teacher. He was more than just a preacher. Uh, he was a miracle worker. Jesus loved people. He had a heart for the multitudes, the broken multitudes. He had a heart for those that were sick, for those that were dying, for those that were afflicted. He had a heart for those that were possessed. Jesus had a heart for people. He loved people. He loved to spend time with people, to interact with people. Jesus wasn't on some perch above the multitudes, raining down edict. No, he was rubbing shoulders with the people, loving them and ministering to them. Not just preaching the truth and teaching them God's word, but working in their lives in in really one of the most practical ways he could have, through healing. you got to kind of rewind just a little bit and place yourself into a first century context. The Roman Empire, the Jewish people, this blending in the Galilee of Gentile and Jew. But during that particular period of history, you know, life expectancy was short. You know, medical uh, knowledge and understanding was limited. Uh, When someone got sick, it often relied back to superstition on trying to find healing. When they were maimed or afflicted, you know, the, the medical care in the first century was not, was not exactly a standard. It wasn't a great thing to get sick, to break a limb. I mean, it, it had ramifications. So when you're talking about Jesus' ministry, and, and it seems as though a lot of the focus ends up being on his healing ministry, that was a massive practical need, especially for the poor that couldn't afford uh, medical care, that couldn't afford the best doctors of the day. Jesus was healing people, but in doing so, he was meeting a very practical need within that society. And so, presenting Jesus as the king, the king of kings, not only are we given by Matthew these accounts of some of his dissertations, the more expansive accounts of his sermons, his teaching, uh, but we're also given these examples of just Jesus meeting practical needs. We pick up where we left off just kind of the continuation of Matthew presenting us examples of this ministry. We read chapter 9, verse 27, that when Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, and again, that's kind of in the continual uh, verb tense. They were crying out, continually crying out. They were repeating and saying, Son of David... Have mercy on us. It's kind of an interesting uh, presentation, interesting scene that we have depicted here by by Matthew, our author. We're introduced to two unnamed blind men. Uh, The first observation is that there were two of them. Uh, Unlikely that they were related, uh, but they become buddies. Blindness in that particular day and age was a particular curse. 
to be blind. Imagine the loss of sight. You were relegated to a beggar status in that culture for your food, for your well-being, for your housing. There was not a social safety net, so to speak. So these two guys are in a, a particular plight, but they have banded together. Two buddies and an equal blindness, an equal misery. But we're told, interestingly enough, that they follow Jesus. Again, don't skip over uh, the implications of just that simple statement. Um, following someone when you're blind uh, is difficult. Uh, it's, it comes with some problems. Uh, it's, it's problematic. To follow Jesus when you're blind would require at least, though we're not told, someone to maybe lead them. Which is interesting to me, uh, on a side note, uh, Pastor Joe Foch makes the observation uh, that these two blind men had to be led to a Jesus they couldn't see. Uh, how, how many of us share that equal testimony? Uh, led to Jesus, a man we couldn't see by a friend who knew we needed an encounter. And so they're led, they're following Jesus, difficult. And they're crying out, they're making a scene, a bit of a racket. They're declaring over and over and over again, likely to get Jesus' attention, Son of David, have mercy on us. Son of David, have mercy on us. What a scene. Within this declaration, we do learn a little of these two blind men, though they couldn't see Jesus, though they couldn't see the miraculous. They were aware uh, of who he was. They were aware of his ministry. They had heard his teaching. They had heard the rumors. They had been present for what they could. They're listening and they make this declaration, again, it's the first time in Matthew's gospel that Jesus is, is declared to be the son of David, which, again, we could go off on a tangent here, a rabbit trail, but it is a messianic declaration. The promised son of David was the promised king of kings, the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior, the son of David, an indication that this promised Savior would be a descendant directly uh, from King David. And uh, the validity of that you find back in Matthew chapter 1, where we're presented a genealogy that takes Jesus' genealogy, his family heritage, back to indeed King David. So these men crying out, Son of David, it, they're calling him the Christ. They're making a declaration of, of conviction. Though they couldn't see, they could listen. And what they heard stirred their hearts to faith. This indeed has to be the Christ, the Savior, Son of David. Now notice their request, have mercy on us. Notice they don't ask particularly for a healing. They ask for mercy. For Jesus to look upon their condition and to act in accordance with what he felt would be best. Son of David, have mercy on us. And then notice verse 28 Matthew continues, and when Jesus had come into the house, the blind men came to him. <laughs> I, I find a little hilarity in that. You have these two blind men crying out. They're following Jesus with all the difficulties that would have, would have naturally brought with it. They're declaring Jesus to be the son of David. They're making this appeal for mercy. Does Jesus, like he does in other instances, stop? turn around and address these two men? No. <laughs> We're actually told he, he keeps walking. Which again is, makes it a little bit more difficult for the blind men to keep following. But they do, and they keep declaring. But Jesus keeps walking. And not only that, he goes into a house, which again is particularly difficult. 
you know, for two blind men trying to follow Jesus, now they have to navigate a home. I see these men standing outside, knocking on the door, right? Jesus comes into the house, but the blind men are not deterred. They continue, they follow after him. And so Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? Again, just playing the scene out in my mind. These men enter the house. They can't see. They're unaware of their surroundings. It's a particularly new environment. They don't know if Jesus is looking at them, if Jesus is still there, if he's slipped out the back door. What it must have been like to hear a familiar word. Again, they've not been able to see Jesus, but they've heard Jesus. For Jesus to say, this, the, this word piercing through their darkness, do you believe that I am able? Now, you should stop there. I, I think that's a, a particular question relevant to all of us. Now, it continues to do this, indicating a healing of their blindness. You know, earlier we, we encountered a leper that came to Jesus. And the leper, in a similar way, crying out continually, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me cleanse. You, know, you can heal. If you are willing. The leper didn't question Jesus' ableness. He just doubted his willingness because of the implications of leprosy and, and what that indicated about his own life and the perceived notion of this being on the account of sin or the judgment of God. These two men, however, uh, they're not here uh, doubting a willingness. In fact, we're not really given the indication they're doubting much at all, but Jesus asks a pertinent question. Do you believe that I am able, that I have the ability to heal you of your blindness? Do you believe? And they said to him, yes, Lord. Again, I, I, I've noted this before, but it's always relevant to, to repeat. What's of particular interest, again, if you place Matthew into a particular chronology with, with Mark, Luke, and, and John, uh, this is more unlikely uh, the first instance of Jesus encountering the blind. Now, he will heal the blind on five different occasions likely healed the blind on, on many occasions beyond just the five we have recorded. But this is the first presentation of it. So the question, do you believe that I am able, uh, carries a deeper relevance in the context of he's never done this before to heal the blind. Now, he's performed some amazing miracles up into this juncture, uh, the previous one being a, a radical one, the healing of, of the dead. If Jesus can rise the dead, uh, you would think that he can heal uh, the blind. If, if you believe that he is the son of David, that he's God incarnate, if you believe that he is the creator, then, then you would reason that he also has the ability to fix what may be marred of his creation. Again, it's not an outlandish thing to think that Jesus would be able to heal someone of blindness if you believe that he was the creator of the eyeball. You know, if you believe that Jesus created the way in which the eye receives images and then processes those images as it relays neurologically to the brain and how the brain then uh, takes those 
those neurons and flips them and, and produces an image and how that image only has a relevance to the catalog of imagery that you've developed since childbirth, the ability to see. I mean, I mean, this idea, are you able to take someone that's blind and give them sight? I mean, that's a, that is, that's a pretty hefty question. You know, sometimes we have hefty questions as well. There's parts of us that are broken or parts of us that are hurting. There are parts of us that have equally been marred by sin and this fallenness, this planet that we live in. And we have these wounds in our heart. We have these burdens that we carry. And sometimes our question is, is Jesus able? Can he? Can he really take this thing that I'm dealing with and heal it? This brokenness, can he mend it? Is he able? And Jesus asked, but their reply, yes. Yes, we believe. And then they say, Lord. This declaration, first, there was this affirmation of who Jesus was. In a very general sense, you're the son of David. You are the Messiah. You are the Christ. It's a declaration of fact from their perspective. Now they've personalized it. We know this is who you are, but to us, you're Lord. Again, two blind men that have just been following. Two blind men that have not been healed. Two blind men still in darkness. Two blind men declaring Jesus to be their Lord. Yes, we believe. Yes, you are able. But beyond it all, you are our Lord. And then we're told, he touched their eyes. <laughs> just pause there. <laughs> you're, in you're in darkness, you're blind. You don't see this coming, literally. You don't see it coming. What must that have been like? Again, there's two men, four eyes. Jesus has two hands, multiple fingers. So it's, it's like he's doing this at once. You know, he, he approaches to get this sensation that someone's approaching. You're standing there timid. What's he going to do? And then to feel the fingers of this man touching your eyes. That initial hesitation, that initial, initial recoil, right? But he's Lord, he's the master, he has a plan. And you're standing there. What comes next? He's touching our eyes. And as he's touching their eyes, Matthew says that, that Jesus declared, According to your faith, let it be to you. And their eyes were opened. Their eyes were opened. Again, I won't bore you with all the particular details of what it takes to heal human eyeball. All that would go in to their ability to see. As mentioned, not, not just the healing of whatever it was causing the blindness, which is amazing in and of itself. But then the ability to actually see or to make sense of what you're seeing. I mean, these men are at a severe disadvantage. You have a catalog of images developed since birth that you're always recalling to make sense of the world around you. These men lack such an archive. It's not just that Jesus heals the physical brokenness or, or malady, but he imparts this, 
this neurological archive. I mean, it is an astounding miracle to heal of blindness, to restore sight. And yet these men believe that Jesus is able and they declare him to be Lord and Jesus touches their eyes. He makes contact. And the first face that they see is Jesus. How amazing. And then they look at each other and they're like, you're as ugly as I, as I imagined. These two buddies had been running around in darkness for years. And now they can see each other. I promise you that that was a sight they would never forget. The face of Jesus and the face of each other. And every time they saw each other, they were reminded of Jesus. In this incredible moment that they took a step of faith and they came to Jesus, believing he was able, trusting the master, and receiving sight. Jesus touching exactly what needed to be healed in a way that only he can. And Jesus makes this interesting statement that we do have to spend a moment to address. He said, according to your faith, let it be to you. Now, now within the greater flow of the last two chapters, we, we have a lot of very different examples that kind of in some ways contradict this and its surface. Faith, according to your faith. Jesus obviously in regards to these two men, pin the healing to their faith. But we have other instances that kind of challenge the necessity of faith, really, in some regard. Now we have the leper who comes to Jesus, obviously demonstrating faith. But, but take the previous example. You have a little girl, a 12-year-old, who's dead. Dead as can be. The funeral is in process. And Jesus calls her forth and raises her. Did her faith heal her? No. <laughs> She's dead. As dead as you can be. There's no belief. There's no faith. There's not even the approaching of Jesus from the little girl. Jesus comes to her. And like he does with, with the lame man. Was it the lame man's faith? that caused Jesus to forgive him of his sin and then to validate that power to raise him from his lameness? No. We're told very specifically that it was the faith of his friends, the friends that brought him, that moved Jesus to action. Like some people will try to take a passage like this and, and develop the, a theology that if you're not being healed, it's a consequence of your faith or a lack of your faith. There's a whole heresy within Christianity that presents this, this false notion. Contrary, and, and in opposition to many examples, illustrations, Lazarus, was it his faith? He'd been dead not just for a day like the little girl, but for four. The dude's partying in heaven at this point. He stinketh, as the old King James tells us. No. No, not at all. And then you can say, well, it's not, it's not works. We have examples of this. I mean, the thief on the cross, though he had faith in Jesus, which is why he would see Jesus in paradise. Was it his works that earned his ticket to heaven? No, the man was nailed to a tree. He could do literally nothing. So what does Jesus mean when he tells these two that according to your faith, let it be to you? Well, again, place it within the flow of, 
of the narrative and the demonstration of their faith. What was their faith in? Their faith was in Jesus, which is why, A, they were following after him, which is why they were declaring him to be the son of David, which is why they continued to follow, which is why they entered the house, which is why they stood there and answered Jesus' question, declaring him to be Lord. You see, again, it's not the amount or abundance of faith, but it's the object of one's faith. It's the fact that these men came to Jesus and pursued Jesus. Even when it seemingly was that Jesus ignored them, their cries on the road, going into the house, they continued. They believed in Jesus, and they came to Jesus, and they trusted Jesus as the Christ. And so when Jesus says, according to your faith, it's not as though that there was something within themselves. It was that they believed in him and were willing to come to him and trust that whatever he did was in his perfect will in their lives. Meaning that sometimes we're healed and sometimes we're not. But we trust and we believe that he is able, that he is willing. But regarding the results, that's in his hands and his alone. These two men, a wonderful example. And then Jesus, as he did, interestingly enough, with the leper. Matthew continues to say that Jesus sternly warned them, saying, see that no one knows it. How do you keep this a secret? I mean, really, you know, go out and pretend like you're still blind. You know, don't let anyone know. But just again, like the leper, when they had departed, they spread the news about Jesus in all of that country. I guess if you're going to be disobedient in some regard, that's probably an acceptable one, telling everyone about Jesus. Now, why would Jesus give that particular instruction? Well, you've got to keep in mind that Jesus is operating on a very particular timeline. There is a plan that Jesus has, and there is a, a time frame in which that plan would be accomplished. It would be important for Jesus to arrive in Jerusalem on a very particular day, according to Daniel 9. A very specific day of promise. An actual day. What we call Palm Sunday. Jesus had planned to arrive. And that the people would declare him to be a king. And then, in the course of time, by the end of that week, he would be denied and betrayed and alienated and crucified and then rise from the dead. Jesus is on a timeline. There's a time frame. And so in regards to his ministry, there's this kind of constant ebb and flow where Jesus is ministering to the people and he's doing amazing works, but he's kind of trying to keep the popularity a little at bay to a degree. He has a plan. Things can't get crazy and all out of control. But we continue. As they went out, Behold, they brought to him a man, mute and demon-possessed. Now there is a little bit of, I won't say controversy, but debate in regards to what exactly Matthew's recording. Because we have within the flow that when they had departed, they spread the news about him in all that country. As they went out, behold, they brought to him a man. Was this the moment in which the blind men exited and now we have this new scene? Or is this a more general term, they? Is this all happening at the same time? And honestly, you can find varying opinions on each side. I don't care. Really doesn't matter. But behold, 
And when Matthew uses this word behold, he wants you to consider something. Think about it. That they brought to him a man, mute, and demon-possessed. Now you need to understand a little bit about demon-possession. And regarding demon-possession, some of the legends, stipulations, uh, the, the way in which the religious leaders of Israel handled what we call possession. And they had traditions. Again, none of this is exactly biblical. But they had developed certain superstitions about how to address uh, those that were possessed, how to um, cast a demon out, ex- you know, an exorcism, so to speak. And one of the theories was, in that day, was that you needed to get the demon to reveal to you its name. And that once you then had the name of such a demon, you could then have an authority to then ask that demon to depart. Again, superstition, not a biblical concept, but as a result, those that were mute and possessed, they they saw the, the muting, the inability to speak, as that demonstration of a greater authority and power of that demon. Why? Because the man couldn't physically articulate the name of the demon. And so there would be no way to therefore cast out the demon. So if you had a a demon-possessed man that was mute within that culture, this was a hopeless case. I mean, this was somebody that that the religious leaders couldn't help, that the physicians couldn't help. I mean, this man was possessed. That demon had great power, great authority. You couldn't get the name of the demon. He was written off. Hopeless. There's nothing that anyone can do. But we're told, and when the demon was cast out. Now, thanks, Matthew. He doesn't tell us how. He doesn't give us any record of what Jesus did, what Jesus said. Could it have been that there was nothing to really uh, record? They bring the man, Jesus looks, and boom, the demon's gone. Jesus doesn't even have to utter a word. That everything's happening within the spiritual plane, demonstrating now Jesus' power, Jesus' authority. The man's mute, indication that he's a hopeless cause. Jesus doesn't even say anything. And he can still cast the demon out. Kind of cool. So the demon's cast out. And the man speaks. The mute spoke. And the multitudes marveled. Again, so much detail provided to us by Matthew. This very matter of fact. Demons cast out. The mute spoke. Multitudes marveled. And they said it was never seen like this in Israel. Which is true. And you have examples of the miraculous happening in Israel and beyond the borders of Israel, for that matter. You know, really the miraculous dating back to the liberation of the the Jewish people from the hands of Pharaoh and the plagues there in, in Egypt and some of the miraculous signs and wonders performed by Moses and then their deliverance and the parting of the Red Sea and and some of the supernatural things that took place uh, during their wilderness wanderings. And, and then even then, when they entered the land, you had m- the miraculous, what happened there in Jericho. And stories of Gideon and some of the, the prophets and the judges. And there w- there's always been a miraculous element within God's handling and His working of the people. Again, people will often find the miracles within Scripture, and they're like, I can't believe that. I can't believe in the miraculous. I can't believe in the supernatural. Well, my question is, do you believe in God? I mean, that's where it kind of starts. In the beginning, God. Just stop there. First few words of the Bible. 
If you believe in the beginning, there was God. He was always there. He's always powerful. God. Then what you might perceive to be the supernatural is actually very natural when it comes to the activities of God. Now, if you parted the Red Sea, that would be quite a feat. That would be supernatural. It supersedes what you're naturally able to do. And yet with God, who is above the natural, the supernatural is very normal. And again, with Jesus and the healing of people, if you believe he's the creator, can't the creator fix his creation? Is that outlandish? Is that beyond the pale? Is that unbelievable? No. To change a life, is that crazy? Well, it is crazy in and of yourself, but the author of life changing life, is that crazy? No. So much of what we see to be supernatural is supernatural if you were to do it, but not so much when God does it. So they see the working of Jesus. And while there had been the miraculous, what Jesus is doing here during this ministry, during these three years, it was unlike anything else. All of the prophets predicted it, foretold it. All the working of God leading to this predicted, foreshadowed the ministry of Jesus. It was never seen like this in Israel. But the Pharisees said he casts out demons by the ruler of demons. The Pharisees, again, the religious folk, the Christian coalition of the day, the legalists, the fundamentalists. They've already had a bit of tit-for-tat with Jesus. If you recall back to the man that was healed, lowered down through Peter's roof, the lame man, Jesus forgiving him of, the, of, of, the, of his sins, the Pharisees, the scribes that were present, like this is blasphemy. Like they're, they're already having, like there's this divide that's already taking place, this rejection that's always already brewing. Jesus getting the attention, the acclaim, the marveling of the people. There's a bit of jealousy at root. There's some problems. But they've got to explain away what's happening. I mean, what's happening in Israel is so radical, so unbelievable, but believable, evident. You can't excuse it away. It's happening. But they have to have some explanation, some reason. And so they, they fall back to, well, he's casting out demons because he has authority from Satan. Which, again, is a, it's kind of just a stupid logic, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And yet they're grasping at straws. Verse 35, then Jesus went about all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Yeah, I love this summary statement of just the ministry of Jesus. And, and I do think that there is a, a, a good blueprint for our ministry. Again, if Jesus, if you believe he is our pastor, then his ministry has always remained the same. I like first the notation that he went about in all cities and villages. I kind of like that. And, and I like that because it tells us that, that Jesus didn't, he wasn't crowd chasing. He wasn't seeking a popularity. 
he went to the cities. Again, the bigger population centers. Jesus would go to the synagogues there. But he didn't skirt the villages. Did you notice that? The villages, in contrast to the cities, were smaller. They had less of a population. There wasn't a big crowd. But Jesus didn't skip them. He went to the cities. Again, there's people there. And he went to the villages as well. I, I just That strikes a, an interesting chord to me. Jesus cared just as much about rural folk as he did about city dwellers, you know? And in the process of that, when he would go to the synagogue, what would he do? First, he would teach. Notice that. He would teach. He would open up the scrolls to the Old Testament, and he would expound upon the Word of God. He would explain to the people what the Word of God meant. In a practical way, he would teach the people. He would help the people understand what God's Word was saying. That's what we do here at Calvary 316. The first emphasis of our ministry is teaching the people. It's opening God's word and doing what Jesus did. Going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, line by line, helping people understand what the scripture is saying in a very practical, simple way. But then notice that Jesus, he would teach the people, so he would help the people understand what the scriptures were saying, but then he would preach the gospel of the kingdom. So he would teach, but then he would preach. Once he would articulate what a passage was saying, he would then help the people understand what the passage meant, what God was articulating, the kingdom, the gospel. That word gospel, it's a good news. And what is that good news? It's that we have a king. That we have a king that loves the people that cares for the people, that ministers to the people. And then he healed every sickness, every disease. There was nothing beyond his authority or his ability. So he would teach, and then he would preach, and then he would heal. He practically ministered to people. Love it. And then we're told, but when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them. Because... Now pause there. Again, he would see the multitude, so he saw the people. And what happened? Well, there was a visceral, internal reaction from Jesus. He was moved with compassion. This word compassion, in a, in a kind of a layman's definition, it's literally your pain in my heart. It's not just that he saw people and from an intellectual standpoint identified with what they were going through. Their plight. And again, this is a poor masses. This is subjugated people. It's a, it's a broken people, hurting people. People are doing everything, everything they can to just go day by day. The political structure's crazy. Things are out of control. A lot of them are enslaved. He sees these people. He sees people. And beyond even the, 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 the practical uh, affliction they were going through, he saw the internal. Uh, the people were broken. He saw what, what ravaged, and he could, ex he could see their pain, and he felt it. How could you feel it? How can you be moved with compassion, ultimately? You can't be moved with compassion without the experience to a degree. doesn't mean that the example is, is, is A to A. Like, as an example, 
was Jesus ever divorced? Did Jesus' spouse ever cheat on him and run away with another man? Did he experience that? Well, no, not in a, like a practical sense. Jesus wasn't married enough to be divorced. But does he know the pain? Well, yeah, in fact, like the entire story of the Old Testament is how Jesus was a husband and Israel was his bride. And she played the harlot over and over and over again. To be rejected. Does Jesus know what that's like? So that when you're rejected, can he have compassion? Can he be moved to compassion in your situation? What about being stabbed in the back by friends? Jesus, you just don't know what I'm going through. Well, okay, maybe not what you're going through, um, but like, you know, my 12 closest bros, you know, in my moment of need, they all turned and ran. Except for one guy, he pulled out a spear and attacked a kid. Different story, but rejection? Yeah, one week the entire nation was saying I was the king of kings and then crucified me. Yeah, I know rejection. In fact, I experience rejection every single day that someone dies and goes to hell because they rejected me and my love and what I did on the cross on their behalf. Yeah, I know rejection. Betrayal? Oh, I know betrayal. You see, Jesus lived the human life. He walked the human experience. In fact, in Hebrews, we're told that it's because of that that we indeed have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses because he'd experienced them. Well, yeah, Zach, I could, I could sit down and tell you all, man, my family is dysfunctional. My brothers and sisters, they're crazy. My mom's off the hinges. My goodness, my f- does Jesus know what that's like? Well, yeah, he hangs out with you. But, I mean, beyond that, you look at the Gospels and his mom during his ministry and his siblings. There's a point in his ministry that they come and they're like, he's nuts. Let's bring him home. Jesus can sympathize. He was moved with compassion because, and now here's why, he says they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. They were weary and they were scattered. They were tired and they were wandering. What an interesting depiction of our society man i think if you were to really look around at our culture no matter what side of the political aisle or the social cultural battle you might find you know i think a lot of people today are weary we're just kind of tired as a people from covid to the election to everything that's followed, to war and uncertainty and the economies up and down and the roller coaster. And we just like, can we just get a break? Can like, as just a, a country, can we go time out for just a little while? Just some peace, some tranquility? People are tired. 
and they're scattered. Again, I think what a wonderful description. Our society is really trying to figure out what is true and what is false. We're trying to understand what's up and what's from what's down and what's right from what's left. And, and, and we're, our culture is weary and scattered like sheep without a shepherd, with no one to care, with no, no one to, to, to look over. And then what did Jesus say within the context of all of this? He said to his disciples, and I think he would say it to his disciples today, to you and I, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out laborers into the harvest. You know, within that culture, this Roman culture, a really nasty culture, a culture dealing with a lot of different things. In fact, it's, a, it's, a, it's an empire on the verge of, of, a, of a very slow descent into chaos. If you study Roman, the Roman Empire. Jesus looks at the Jewish people, a religious people, a weary people, a scattered people. He looks at them, and what is his conclusion? I love this. Because it's applicable, I think, to us today. He looks at such a society, such a culture, and he says, you know what? The harvest, oh, it's plentiful. What a contrast to the way most Christians look at our society. Christians have just never had the same, this type of opposition ever before. I mean, this world's going to hell in a handbasket. Our society is just being flushed down the toilet. Well, Jesus would say it's a weary, it's a scattered culture that needs a shepherd. But the harvest, well, the harvest is plentiful. Things are ready. But the laborers are few. He says, therefore, pray. Now, it'll transition, and for the sake of time, we'll have to end here. But it'll transition into a bit of a practical example of this. We'll be introduced to the A-team, not just the disciples. These were the apostles. It's an, it's an interesting collection of people. And then a practical example of this, of the Lord of the harvest sending out his disciples to do just this, to bring about a harvest. But for us, I think we can just leave it from the perspective of Jesus, do you really see that the harvest is plentiful? I do. You know, within the grand scheme of things, if you just kind of evaluate society and the march of culture over the last 50 years, you know, things in academia, philosophy, tr trumpeted relativism. This idea of, of, you know, the, the best strategy for, you know, a melting pot of people is, is what's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. There's really nothing that's, that's true in, this, in that sense. It's all relative. It's, what's true is about one's perspective. There's no absolute truth. Again, the, the march of secularism, this march against away from biblical ideas, and, and the, the, the existence of truth of there being a truth, irregardless of perspective. But relativism was really, it was never the end destination. It was more or less just a bridge. 
It was a bridge from absolutism to, to really a, a pseudo-nihilism slash narcissism, which is what we see within our society today. Because if everything is true, then nothing is true. And therefore, life is kind of meaningless. And people develop a very nihilistic perspective on life. And they become very inward. You can actually track a lot of the progressions of this through the manifestation of art, culture, music, painting. I won't, again, bore you with all the details, but, but think about it for a moment. What art form best reflects today's society? It tells you a lot about the culture. Is, is it nature? Does that dominate, dominate the, uh, the artistic world? Pictures of nature, outward. No. You know the number one picture taken within our society? You, you actually probably have a whole role on your phone of it. You. It's called the selfie. If there was one art form that best reflects today's culture, it is the selfie. You have taken more pictures of yourself than anyone else has taken of you or has ever been taken in the history of the world. I mean, really. The reflection of culture, what does that tell us? And the absence of, what, of, of truth and meaning, it's all about me and self and what I can do. And you know, when I look at that, I take great hope. Here's why. The more time you spend with you, the more you realize you're not that good. You see, I think our culture is primed for truth. It's primed for meaning. It's primed for Jesus. Hey, Jesus could come tomorrow and all this could go to hell in a handbasket, but I do believe that the harvest is plentiful. And you're a disciple. And so he sends you out to be a witness, to be a light. You're equipped with truth and a testimony that while you were blind, Jesus touched you and gave you sight. And for the first time, you saw Jesus. And then you could see the rest of the world that was just darkened, right? How cool. Father, thank you for your word.